Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It was January 17th, 1994, 4.30 a.m., that a 6.7 earthquake hit Northridge Epicenter. Uh, I remember that. I was living in Northridge. I remember that. Phil, you remember that? Anybody else remember that? You know what's amazing is I teach 10th graders who were not alive when that happened. I didn't think that I was old, and then I felt old. That was a, a crazy time for our valley, for our community. Um, I think we could label the atmosphere with one word, and that was insecurity. Just what's going to happen next? There were aftershocks that were happening. What's going to happen next? Will I be okay? Many people died. Thousands were displaced. Will I be okay? Reminded me, I I was reminded of this this last week. I don't know how many of you felt uh, the earthquake that was uh, Tuesday night, January 21st. There was a 3.6 earthquake. It was just a very sudden jolt. It was at 11.41. I was awake because I was working on a paper, Uh, but as I was uh, in my office, it just felt like God just went to our house, just a big, and that was all it was. At first, I thought, like, did I did I nod off as I was working on my paper? Did I fall asleep and wake up? Like, what what happened? And I don't know if you get that kind of flight or fright, uh, fight or flight response in your body when something happens and your adrenaline kicks in and you're kind of a little, a little buzzed and a little shaky and what am I going to do? And, and I, I stood in my living room. If you had seen me, I just looked like a crazy man because I just stood in my living room thinking, what do I need to do? Like, do I need to get my kids? Do I need to, do I just lay down here? Like, what, what am I supposed to do right now? That sense of insecurity, uh, unsure what's going to happen next. Those of you who were at the conference yesterday, you heard Philip DeCourcy say, security is not the absence of danger. Security is the presence of God. Security isn't the absence of danger, it's the presence of God. It's knowing that there is a sovereign God, a faithful God, and trusting and clinging to Him. And I think that the church that we're going to look at in Philadelphia this morning, this church was clinging to Christ for security and nothing around them. Everything else had disappeared. Everything else had proven to be unstable and insecure. And so this church was clinging to Christ for security. So let's read these verses and find our security in Jesus Christ alone. Philippians, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have little power, but have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they're Jews, but they're not, but lie, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet 
and make them to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing that which is going to come on the world, the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, that's our prayer, to live out what the exhortation is in this passage. We want to have ears that would be hearing. We want to have hearts that would be receiving. We want to have eyes that would see. That's why we always pray on Sunday mornings, straight from Psalm 119, open our eyes, Holy Spirit, that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot see what we are meant to see, what we're supposed to see, what we need to see. We cannot see it apart from your divine assistance. So give us assistance. Give us illumination so that we would see not only what these words mean, but what they mean for us today. How we apply the authorial intent of these verses to our lives today. And God, I pray that you would enable us to cling to the hope that's found in these verses. To cling to Christ your Son, who gives us all the security that we could possibly need. May we walk out these doors bolstered in our faith, excited to face the stress and anxiety and worries and cares of tomorrow, knowing we have a God who loves us today. Enable us to see these things, to treasure these things, and to trust Christ above all things. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, we are almost finished with our series through the uh, letters to the seven churches. We come to the second to the last church in Philadelphia, and we, by this time, you know the formula. There's always a greeting, a description of Christ, a a description of what he knows, a a criticism, uh, a warning based off of the criticism that's given, an exhortation, a promise. So let's look at those in order. Number one, the greeting to this church. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, this one sounds like, well, we know where this is. Maybe he's writing to Pennsylvania. No, this is a city, again, still on that postal route in Asia Minor. It's about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, which was the last uh, city, the last church that we looked at. Philadelphia was a hub city. It was called the gateway to the east. It was a very important city where a lot of commerce would go through. It was named for a man named Attalus II, uh, his nickname was Philadelphus, which means, Philadelphia means, uh, you guys know, city of brotherly love, right? So Philadelphus was, this man loves his brother. He cared for his brother very much. He was known for uh, caring for his family and specifically his brother. So they named the city after him, the city of brotherly love. It's known, Philadelphia, the, the main thing that you need to know, and it corresponds perfectly to even what we talked about this morning, uh, it, it was known for having an enormous volcano sitting right outside of the city. The volcano was good. I don't know how this works in agriculture. I'm not a farmer. But apparently, volcanic ash 
When it settles down, it creates good soil. Don't ask me how that works. That happens. That's what all of the commentaries say. And therefore, we know historically that they had amazing crops. Specifically, they would grow grapes, and their, their patron god over their whole city was Dionysus, which is the god of grapes, the god of alcohol, the god of wine. So this is uh, just an amazing thing that they had this volcano that was sitting outside of their city that brought great blessing, but also brought imminent danger constantly not only from the volcano actually hitting their city, but the earthquakes that happened from the volcanic activity. There was an earthquake in AD 17. It was, uh, Roman historians say it was the worst natural disaster that happened in the entire Roman Empire. It was a huge earthquake that destroyed all of the city of Philadelphia. It has this beautiful volcano that's doing great things if it's giving them this awesome agricultural ability, but it also destroyed their city in AD 17. They tried to rebuild it, but it never got back to its glory days. So, earthquakes, destructive forces, so much so that when the entire city fell in on itself, completely destroyed, uh, the people that survived just went out of the city. Kind of like what happened with the, uh, the Turners in Albania. When the earthquake happened, people just lived in their cars. I don't want to live in the apartment complexes or in the buildings. I, I, I don't feel safe there. And so everybody moved out of the city of Philadelphia. They just built tents, just temporary dwelling places outside the city. I don't want anything permanent here that's going to be destroyed by another earthquake. They were insecure, and they were scared of what might happen. But though this city was small and destroyed, and though the church in the city was even smaller than the city itself, it was one of the most loved cities, one of the most loved churches by Christ. We don't find any criticism in these verses. This is a tiny church. Jesus even says it's a small church that has a little power. It looks like it's dead. Remember, Sardis looked like it was alive, but it was dead. This is the exact opposite. This church looks like it's dead, but it's very much alive. And as I was reading through this, I just could not help but think, I wonder if, if Jesus would feel the same way about CBC. We're small. We have little power. We're not enormous. But we do have a steadfast clinging to Christ. And we want to be faithful. And I wonder if he'd say these words to us that he did to this church. So the greeting. It's an a amazing history of this city and it's an amazing church. Number two, the description of Christ. The description of Christ. He's going to give a description of himself. He's always done that. And this description has four elements to it. And just like the city in Smyrna, if you remember Smyrna, the persecuted church, uh, the church in Smyrna was not condemned at all. That church, God just said, this is an amazing church. You're faithful. Keep on clinging to me. Be faithful. Remain faithful unto death. The same thing's going to happen here. There is no implication whatsoever of judgment in what he's saying, even the description that he gives of himself. Four aspects of the description. Number one, he's holy. He who is holy and he who is true, number two. And he who has the key of David, number three. And he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, number four. What do these all mean? The description of Christ. He's holy. He's pure. He's set apart. He's sinless, yes, but he's set apart. He's completely different from us. He's completely other than us. But even more importantly than that, Jesus is speaking of himself, and he refers to himself as the Holy One. The, the title, Holy One, is only ever used to speak of God the Father. 
No one would ever dare to say, I'm the Holy One of Israel. No one would ever dare to use that phrase unless they are claiming to be God himself, which is why Jesus was killed, right? He was killed because he blasphemed, according to the Jewish leaders. They said, you've blasphemed, you've declared yourself God when you're not. And here he is again saying, I'm God. I hold the exact same titles and labels as God. I'm holy. I am the Holy One. I'm also true. So he's declaring that he is God, and he's also true. Now, there's two Greek words for true. There's true as opposed to false, and there's true as opposed to not real, uh, existent and real as opposed to not real. That's the word that's used here. Of course, God is true. He is not false. He doesn't say anything that's false. But here, Jesus is saying, I'm the Holy One. I am God, and I'm also real. I am real. I'm existent. I am true in everything that I am. I am not um, an unreal, a fake figment of your imagination. I'm real. I have power. I have authority. I'm real. And I'm faithful on your behalf. I'm trustworthy. This is why Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth. I am the only reality. Jesus is going to tell us about uh, Jewish people who he declares are the synagogue of Satan. And they would have said, your Jesus that you think is the Messiah is a fake, a fraud. He deserved the death that he received. And Jesus says, no, I'm the only reality that there is. I am the, the truth. I am the reality. Jesus is holy. He is true. Number three, in his description of himself, he has the key of David. He holds the key of David. Now, keys represent power and authority, so this means that he has power and authority. In chapter one, it's very interesting because every description that we've seen of Jesus uh, describing himself They've all come from that vision from chapter 1. You remember blazing uh, eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze. They've all come from chapter 1 except for this description. There's no callback to chapter 1 in this description. These are all different aspects of who Jesus is. These are new elements that we haven't seen from chapter 1. We saw a key in chapter 1. Jesus holds the, the key of death and of Hades. That's the ability to kill people or to make them alive. But here specifically, he says, I have the key of David. These are the promises with the authority over salvation. So this isn't the, the bad key. This is the good key. This is entrance into eternal life. This picture, by the way, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 22, just turn there really quickly, Isaiah chapter 22. This comes from, this statement, the key of David, comes from Isaiah 22. Not from Revelation 1, but Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, verse 15, God is going to speak to a man named Shebna, uh, who was originally a steward for the king. And verse 15, he says, Come, go to the steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. And say these things, what right do you have here? Whom do you have here that you hew out a tomb for yourself? You hew a tomb on the heights. You carve a resting place for yourself in that rock. Um, Shebna had said, hey, I want there to be a memorial to who I am because I'm amazing. Uh, I want there to be, when I die, this massive memorial that people can commemorate my death and my life and how amazing I am. And God says, why are you doing that? You're not awesome. You're not amazing. And because you've done that, verse 17 the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O oh man. He's about to grasp you firmly 
and roll you tightly like a ball. I love that. Like if you want to throw a piece of paper in the trash and you're sitting down and you don't want to get up, you crumple it up into a ball and you toss it, right? God says, that's what I'm going to do to you, Shebna. I want to get you out of here, so I'm going to crumple you up and throw you. I'm going to get you out of here to a vast country, and you're going to die there with your splendid chariots. With all of your glory, no, it's going to be to your shame. I'll depose you from your office, verse 19. I'll pull you down from your station. And then it will come about on that day that I'll summon my servant. So this is the guy that's going to replace you. Uh, Eliakim is going to replace you, the son of Hilkiah. And I'm going to clothe him with your tunic. I'm going to give him your tunic, your sash, your authority. I'm going to entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Here's the quotation that's used in Revelation 1. What he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to give him authority, and I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So the key is authority. I'm going to give him authority as if he were the king. He's not the king, but I'm going to give him authority as if he were the king. So when Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 says, I have the key of David, he's calling back to that, to Isaiah 22 saying, I have been given authority. By the way, the fascinating reality is Jesus had also said in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 that he has given us those keys. Remember, he says, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. If you declare that something is a certain way, you hold the keys of the kingdom, you have authority. This is in the context of Matthew 18 where he says, if you declare that somebody is not saved according to the word of God, that's already been happening in heaven. That's already just, you're reflecting what's real in heaven. You're reflecting the reality of what's already happened. I give you authority. So Jesus has this key and he's also given us this key. We have been given the power to lock and to unlock and reflect what's happening in heaven. If you're a Christian this morning, you have, like Elkanah, you have that, or Eliakim, you have that, that key on your shoulder. You have authority that you can use as you share the gospel with people. You have that key. Do you feel the weight of that key on your shoulder? Do you feel a burden for the people around you? Because you've been given access through Christ to the kingdom of God. You have that key, and we have been given that key to give it to others. So Jesus declares he is the Holy One, the True One. He has authority. He is uh, holding the key of David. And then number four in verse seven, Revelation chapter three, verse seven, he will open and no one can shut. He shuts and no one can open. He uses his authority. He not only has authority, but he exercises it. If he wants to grant you access, you will have it. If he does not want to grant somebody access, you will never have it. I love the beauty in these promises of who Christ is. He says, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to give you access. There might be somebody in your life that is, in your mind, unsavable, right? There's somebody in your family. There's somebody in your neighborhood that you just think, no matter what I do, I cannot get to them. I cannot get the gospel to them. I try as hard as I can. I pray as hard as I can, and they will not listen. Well, Jesus says, if he wants to open the door, he'll just open it. Can I just encourage you? Don't give up hope. No one's ever hopeless. Don't give up hope. Jesus has the key. He has the authority. He's given you the authority to share the gospel. And he's the one who will open the door. And no one can shut it if he opens it. 
This also works in our community. If he wants to open the door for evangelism, he's going to open it. Nobody can shut it. Nobody can say no to God. This would especially be helpful for this uh, church in Philadelphia because the Jews had said to these Jewish believers, you have blasphemed God. You're out of the synagogue. This is something, remember in John 9, the man that was born blind, and he says, uh, I want to be careful here because my parents don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. Remember his parents say, we don't know who healed this man. Pharisees say, was it Jesus? Do you believe he's God? Tell us what you think. And eh, We're going to plead the fifth on this one because we don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. If you were kicked out of the synagogue, in, in Greek, very strong language, apo synagoge, if you were kicked out, you could not come back, and you were kicked out not only of a church, you were kicked out of the economy. Nobody who is a Jew would deal uh, in business and commerce with you. That's what happened to these believers. These Jewish believers said, no, we believe in Jesus as Messiah, and so they were apo synagoge, they were kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus says, yeah, they might have shut the doors on you, but I'm, I'm the one who has the authority. I've opened the door for you, and they can't shut it. They've shut a door on you that I could pry open easily. Don't fear man. I am in control. So he's the door. He's the one who gives us access, and he gives us the access to help others get to him. He's the one who holds the key, and he's also the locksmith to every door. This is our Savior. This is our God. In many ways, the whole story of the Bible could just be a story of how we gain access to God. You could just sum it up in the theme of how do we get access to God. Adam and Eve had it. They were hanging out with God in the garden. They were walking and talking with him, and they lost access to God. And the whole rest of the Bible is how do we get access to God? How do we get back into a reconciled relationship with him where we can enjoy his presence, where we can be with him? Jesus says, I'm the access point, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. Nobody gets to the Father but through me. No sheep goes through to the, the fold, to the pen, to enjoy safety and security, but through the door. So, he says, I'm holy, I'm true, I have the key, and I can open and shut. I have authority. And if you're here this morning and you, you're trying to get access to God any other way but Christ, any other way, maybe you're trying to add good works to the work of Jesus. Maybe you're trying to do things to make God notice you. Maybe you're trying to do things to make God love you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you think, I've lost my opportunity. I've tried, I've gone to him, and I've lost my opportunity. Can I just remind you of John chapter 6, verse 37? Anybody who comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast away. I'll never cast them away. Come to Christ with nothing in your hands, right? That's why we sing Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Come to Christ on the basis of his work, not your own. On the basis of his goodness, not your goodness. He'll never cast you out. So we have the greeting, we have the description of Christ. Number three, we have a declaration of what Christ knows. A declaration of what Christ knows. Jesus says this, verse 8, I know your deeds. And normally, the next word would be, that you have. I know your deeds, that you have. And we find those words down in the middle of that verse. My Bible says, because you have. It's literally that. It's the same construction. That you have a little power. So it's really, I know your deeds, that you have a little power, and you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. 
But there's a parenthetical statement there where the behold begins in verse 8. So it's, I know your deeds, parentheses, behold, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut, end parentheses, that you have little power. It's as if Jesus is so excited to tell them how much he loves them and what he's doing on their behalf that he can't even finish his sentence. He says, I know your deeds, hang on, I gotta tell you this, and then let me tell you about your deeds. He's so excited to tell this church what he's done for them. This is, by the, by the way, the only church where Jesus says that he explicitly loves them. If you drop down to the end of verse 9, I'm going to make these people know that I have loved you. He loves this church. So there's this parenthetical statement of, I've given you access. I've put before you an open door no one can shut. You are going to have an immense impact in your community. That's what he's saying. You are going to have immense impact. Nobody can stop you from what I'm about to allow you to do. So I know your deeds. What are the deeds that he knows? And this is a description of what Christ knows. He knows that they have a little power. That's not a condemnation, right? He's not condemning them for having little power. He's saying, you only have a little power, and yet you're clinging to Christ. You're clinging to me, and you're not letting go, and that little power is being demonstrated in what you're doing. You've kept my word. Even though you're persecuted, you've kept my word. You haven't denied my name. Even though you've been persecuted by the Jews, you haven't denied my name. So I know, I know you're small. If I could paraphrase these words, he says, I know you're small, and I know you don't have a lot of manpower, and I know you don't have a lot of strength, and I know you don't have a lot of resources, but what you have, you are using in faithfulness. That's, that, there is nothing better than we, that, that we could hear than those words. It's not the size of the church. It's not the amount of finances that the church has. It's not the, the footprint that the church has in the community. It's the faithfulness that whatever size church you have will demonstrate in its community. It's whatever faithfulness we have clinging to Christ and keeping his word. Just doing what he tells us to do. And that's what this church is commended for. They've kept the word of God and they haven't denied his name. Jesus goes on to say, verse 9, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. We covered that uh, last chapter where Jesus says, This is a synagogue. Uh, they're filled with Jews. They claim to be Jews as far as believing in the Messiah, not Jesus' Messiah, but believing in Yahweh, believing in the Messiah to come. But they're not true Jews. True Jews are those that Paul would say uh, have been grafted in, that are following Jesus as the Messiah. That's true Judaism. Uh, Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. So they say that they're Jews. They're not. They lie. They, they say that they're the synagogue of Yahweh. They're actually the synagogue of Satan. They're persecuting you. And, and yet... Look at this promise that Jesus says, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now there's a lot of debate over what this means. This could either mean bow down in submission to you, you rule over them. It could mean that. People would point to Philippians 2 to say every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But that word for bow down in submission in Philippians 2 that's not the word that's used here. Many of you will know the Greek word that's used here for worship. Bow down in worship. Proskuneo. Bowing down in worship and adoration. And they're not adoring the Philadelphian believers. They're adoring Christ with the believers. I believe that this is saying those persecutors that hate you, that have kicked you out of the synagogue, 
I've given you the authority to go to them and share Christ with them in such a way that they are going to receive him and they're going to bow down with you and they're going to worship Christ with you. Because remember, though you might think that's impossible, I'm the one who opens and shuts doors. Trust me. He says, behold, I put before you an open door. Trust me. Just do. Be faithful in your evangelism and I'll make it happen. I'm going to make them know that I've loved you. They're going to worship me because of that. Verse 10, also, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I love that, you've kept the word of my perseverance. It's not your perseverance. It's not you persevering to the end. It's God persevering through you. It's him doing the work to keep you. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is an incredibly debated verse. I don't really want to get into the the debate. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, when we get to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, This is a verse that many people would turn to 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 see the rapture happening. Obviously, the word rapture is not used in this verse. What is stated in this verse? Jesus says, I'm going to keep you. Uh, Many people will say, I'm going to keep you through the hour of testing. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to allow you to persevere through the hour of testing, through whatever trials and tribulations you're going to go through. Now, that's not an untrue statement, but that's not what this verse is saying. This verse, keep you, literally means to take you out of. There's a bunch of places we could go to if we had more time to look at where keep you. These words are used in the the Greek New Testament and the Old Testament translation in Greek, the Septuagint. You can go to it. You can see pulled out of, snatched out of violently sometimes, yanked out of a dangerous situation. That's the word here. I'm going to yank you out of a dangerous situation. Not I'm going to preserve you through it, but I'm going to take you out of it. So I'm going to take you out of it. And what's he going to take this church out of? Not the testing itself, but the entire hour. So this isn't just a a trial. This is a season of a trial, right? The hour of testing that's going to come upon the whole world. So this isn't just to the city of Philadelphia. This is the entire known world. This isn't a trial of, many people would say that this is just the persecution that the Jews are, are heaping upon this church. That can't be because those Jews in Philadelphia aren't doing that around the whole world. This is a global tribulation. So I'm going to keep you, I'm going to take you out of the season. Some, some would say the day of the Lord, I would agree with that. The day of the Lord, this hour, this season of trial, of temptation, of tribulation, of judgment that's going, that's going to come upon the whole world to judge those who dwell on the earth. The word is to test, but it's to, to test by fire, to show that they're not truly saved and to judge them. So, Jesus promises, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you from that. I'm going to remove you from that. Now, many people would say, yeah, but the church in Philadelphia wasn't raptured. Amen. They weren't raptured. But that promise still holds, right? They're not going through the tribulation. How were they kept from the tribulation? They died. They died and they went into heaven and they're with Jesus right now and they are not going to live through the tribulation. And based off of every other promise that's given to every single church in Revelation 2 and 3 that applies also to believers, they all apply to believers. 
That's why many people would say, well, then this applies to believers today as well. The promises that are given to the believers in these churches are also applied to believers today, so therefore this promise applies to believers today. We will also be kept from that hour of testing. Maybe we'll be kept by dying and God will take us home. Maybe we'll be kept by the rapture. That's another issue that we'll talk about when we come to other passages. It's not uh, all over the pages of Scripture. There's about three verses in the entire Bible that would develop a theology of the tribulational rapture, the, the pre-tribulational rapture, that God's going to take us from the tribulation before it happens. There's a debate, obviously, and I don't want to get into it. I just want to say clearly, this passage, there's no debate over what this passage is saying. I love you, you're believers, and because you're believers, I'm not going to judge you the way that I'm judging the world. I'm taking you away from that judgment. So because you, Philadelphian believers, this would be my paraphrase, have been faithful to and kept my word, I will keep you, believers, from the hour of testing, the great tribulation that's coming, the hour that's going to come upon the whole world. It hasn't happened yet. And the way that I keep you, Philadelphian believers, is I'm going to take you in death. The way he might keep us from that hour, maybe it's the rapture, maybe it'll be death, but he will and he has promised to keep us. And we can trust that that promise is true. We'll talk a lot more about this as we continue our study of Revelation. He says in verse 11, this is normally where the the warning, the criticism and the warning would come in, but there is no criticism and therefore there is no warning. There is no criticism. That would be number four. There is none. There is nothing to criticize about this church. And therefore, there is no corresponding warning. There's nothing to warn them. There's impending doom and judgment that's coming. No, not not for this church. But that doesn't mean that there's not a reminder. I love how Jesus does this. This church is faithful. They're clinging to Christ. Nothing bad can be said about this church. And yet Jesus says, can I remind you of something? Can I just remind you? We're, We're never beyond needing reminders, right? My daughter somehow one day taught herself to ride a bike. I don't know how it happened. I had always envisioned that I will teach my kids to ride the bike, right? You, you know, you have the hand under the seat and you run with them and, and they fall and, oh, it's okay, and scrape their knee and you patch it up and then you run with them and you can do it and then you run with them, you can do it and then finally you run with them and you let go and thanks dad for, oh no, and then they fall and, um, and then you, you say, you did it, right? You've done it, you can do it all by yourself. You don't need me anymore. Somehow my daughter bypassed all of that. So I didn't get any of that with my daughter. One day she said, Dad, I can ride a bike. And I was like, yeah, right. And I went out, saw her, she can ride a bike. Wow, okay, great. I missed my entire fatherhood dream. (laughs) Had to have two more kids too. Maybe we'll live it out with them. But if I can use that as an analogy, I think we tend to feel that way with Jesus, right? Like, help me, help me, please keep your hand on the seat. I don't want to fall, help me, help me. And then we fall, we fall, help me, help me, we fall. And then one day we just think, I've got this. You can take your hand off. And you know how you see kids sometimes get annoyed that their parents are still there? Like, stop. I got this on my own. Don't treat me like a little child anymore. I can do this. I don't know about you, but I've done that with my Heavenly Father, right? Please, let me go. I can do this on my own. And Jesus says graciously, hey, no one is ever at a place where they don't need my hand on that seat holding them up. No one's ever at a place where they don't need me to keep them. They may be pedaling as hard as they can, but I am there to keep them. That's why he says in verse 11, it's not a warning, it's just a reminder. I'm coming quickly. That's not to judge you. I'm coming quickly to take you. 
I'm coming quickly. Your marathon of a spiritual race, it's almost over. Stay faithful. Persevere. Just a few more miles and you'll be done. Cling. Hold fast. Cling to what you have. Keep on. The, the tense is keep on doing what you've been doing. It's not start being faithful. It's just stay faithful. No one's going to take your crown. No one's going to take your crown. This is the crown of life. No one's going to take your eternal life away. This does not mean that someone can. This is where the question always pops up, can I lose my salvation? I don't really like that question because it comes at it from the wrong angle. If salvation, if keeping salvation is dependent upon me, then yes, I will lose my salvation. I lose my car keys every day, so of course I'm going to lose my salvation. Salvation is not dependent upon me keeping it. So the better way to ask the question isn't with me as the, uh, the main uh, point of this sentence, right? A better way to ask the question is not, can I lose my salvation? Because if I could lose my salvation, I would. better way to do it, a better way to ask it is make God the subject and us the object. Can God give us enough grace to keep us? That's the question. Do you believe that God is powerful enough to give us enough grace to keep us to the end? Another way we could say it in the negative, can God ever become so weak that he can no longer sustain us? Can, on, can God ever become so weak that he just loses his grip on us and goes, ah, I lost one? And the answer is, amen. The answer is no, right? That's why Jesus said, I have all authority. I have the key on my shoulder. I can shut and open. I am God. Therefore, I can preserve you to the end. I can preserve you to the end. That leads to number six. Obviously, we didn't cover four or five because there is no uh, criticism or warning. Just a, a sweet reminder. Verse 12, the promise, the promises that Jesus gives. These are beautiful promises. And just remember the context historically of what was taking place. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar. This is permanent. This is unshakable. Uh, Historians tell us that the temple that was in Philadelphia when that earthquake happened, the entire temple was destroyed except for the pillars. They remained. I think Jesus is saying to this precious church, man, you've been through an earthquake that's destroyed everything. You're living in tents that are completely temporary. But you cling to me, you hold fast to me, and I'm going to give you a place of permanence. I'm going to make you a pillar. No one can shake you out of my hand. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. This is permanent, unshakable, uh, a reality, a place that faithful believers have in the temple of God. I'm going to make you a pillar. In a land of severe earthquakes, I'm going to make you immovable, unshakable. You're never going to go out, right? Jesus says, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He won't go out from it anymore. You won't need to go out and make a temporary dwelling place in a tent. You won't need that. I'm going to make you a home, I'm going to make you a home where you can stay forever. You don't need to go outside and come back in and go outside. No, no, I'm making you a home that will last forever. This is what Jesus says in John 14. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come grab you and take you there, and you'll stay there with me forever. There's no chance you'll be removed. There's no earthquake that can come and destroy you. You have unrestricted access, eternal citizenship, never to be evicted, never to have your passport or your visa expire, never to live outside the city in a, in a temporary dwelling place, perfect, complete security. So promise number one, you'll be a pillar in the temple. Promise number two, I'm going to give you a name. I will write on him a name. A name means ownership, putting a brand on something. Again, 
their identity is insecure in the church in Philadelphia. Their identity, who are we, where are we, what are we doing? And he says, I'm going to give you a place, and I'm going to give you a name with all the rights and privileges and protection that come from being a part of my family, God says. I'm going to give you a name, and it's a threefold name. I'm going to write the name, uh, write on him the name of my God, number one, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven, and the name of me, my own new name, triple name. This means we're going to be marked out as belonging to God's Son, God's city, and God the Father himself. You're never going to be insecure ever again. So he says the exhortation, number seven and finally, the exhortation is he who has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Security is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God. So as we leave from here this morning, I don't think that Jesus would say, well, just try harder. We'll do better. We'll be, be a stronger Christian. No. He would say, admit your weakness. You're not a pillar right now. You're riding a bike and it's really feeble and it's not looking good. You need my hand there. So cling to me. Cling to me. Cling to my hand. Hold fast. That's what Jesus would say. I'm strong on your behalf. I'm strong for you. In your weakness, my strength is perfected. So if security is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God, my question this morning to you is, what aspect of God's character are you clinging to? He's in control. He's sovereign. And he's in control in your evangelism. We've seen this morning. He's in control of your fruitfulness in evangelism. He's in control of your perseverance to the end. He's in control of all the trials that you will or will not go through. And he's in control of your entire future, even into your eternal destiny. He's in control of it all. So this morning, I think the appropriate application is to say, I'm not in control of anything. And I'm going to cling to the one who's in control of it all. So what I want to do, I know that we're running out of time. I want us to listen to a song that I think will cement the realities of these words to our hearts, and then we'll be dismissed. Let me pray, and then we'll play this song. God, thank you for your faithfulness. You are holy, and you are true. You are real, you are trustworthy, you are faithful. And I pray right now, as your, your Holy Scripture-inspired word has been preached, that it would now simmer in our hearts as we listen and apply these truths as we sing. God, I pray that we would walk out of here with faith that is boosted and bolstered beyond our wildest comprehension because we know you're holding the seat of our bike and you'll never let go. God, thank you for being faithful. Help us to cling to you in these moments. Amen.